Hey, good morning. Welcome. I'm Jason, and uh, we are honored that you are here to be part of South and City Church for the day, at least. Uh, sometimes we call ourselves a Jesus-centered community for believers and doubters and anyone who's a little bit of both. Uh, really, we're here to be students together in the way that Jesus teaches, and so we're going to do some of that today. Uh, weeks ago, we began a series called The Anatomy of Spiritual Revolution, talking about the big, beautiful, basic, but profound idea that God intends us to grow, that God intends us to grow up, and that in that journey of growing up, sometimes growing means change. Like, there are moments in the journey of growing where everything that got you this far won't get you any further and you might have to find a, a new way of relating to your faith, maybe even a new way of thinking about God or a new way of praying. You might go through seasons of doubt or unbelief where it feels like it's all falling apart on you, but it turns out even those seasons might be part of the growing that you're going through. Uh, we've been talking about that for a few weeks, and today we want to sort of uh, wrap all this up. Uh, there's an author, an Irish poet and theologian named Padre Gotuma, who's written a memoir about his own journey of growing up in his faith and his identity and knowing who he is. He's written a book called In the Shelter. And in that book, he describes an experience he had in Papua New Guinea where the language is different and it affects how they greet one another. And Atuma says this, there was no word for hello in this local language in Papua New Guinea. Instead, upon seeing someone, one simply said, you are here. <laughs> and their answer, as I recall, it was equally straightforward. Yes, I am. So we're going to try this sometime like in our welcome liturgy. I'm going to get up here and I'll say, you are here. And you'll say, beautiful. Yeah. Whether by fact or fiction, it remains that for decades I've thought of the words, you are here and yes, I am, as good places to begin something that might be called prayer. Where is it that we are when we pray? I mean, we're obviously in the place where we are. However, we are often in many places. We are saying to ourselves, I should be somewhere else, or I should be someone else, or I'm not where I say I am. But in prayer, to begin where you are not is a poor beginning. And to begin where you are may take courage or compromise or painful truth-telling. Whatever it takes, it's wise to begin there. The only place to begin is where I am, and whether by desire or disaster, I am here. My being here is not dependent on my recognition of the fact I'm here anyway but it might help if I could learn to look around. I think that's a strong reminder for all of us that a big part of this is simply owning where we are. Whether you're in a season of like great faith and belief or a season of doubt, whether you're in a season where God feels really close to where you are or God feels really far away from where you are, it's really good to name where you are. And so because of that, we've been borrowing from some maps that thoughtful people have created. Now these maps aren't gospel, but they're helpful. And these are different ways of narrating the spiritual journey that people have observed. And so we've heard from authors of books like Stages of Faith and The Critical Journey. And today I want to briefly, for just a second, borrow from another one of these maps that people have created as they observe the ways that people grow up. And the map that I want to tap in today is called uh, Spiral Dynamics. And there's a, a really, really thorough book on this that you can read if you're more interested, just called Spiral Dynamics. Uh, but this, too, is a way of mapping human growth and development. And in Spiral Dynamics, uh, the authors uh, have argued that the way that human societies grow up, like if you go back thousands and thousands of years and you look at the way that humanity has grown up, that there's a, there's a sort of an analogy between that history and the way that individual persons grow up. And so as they've kind of worked this out, they've argued um, that there are a number of sort of stages or they use this idea of V-memes, but don't worry about that too much right now. And, and they describe um, the things that help people flourish 
in different stages. They describe it like this. So they say there's a stage in this whole process where you're best served by rituals, traditions, and symbols. They say there's another stage in this process that requires heroic leaders and storytellers. There's another stage where people need clear, concrete artifacts like doctrine, mission statements, or directives that tell you what to do and how to move forward. There's a stage where people want to know, how is this allowing me to excel and achieve? There's a stage that values whatever can serve broad humanistic needs. And there's a stage that takes a holistic view of how each of these other stages fits together. Now, a reminder, whether we're looking at spiral dynamics or other maps of this growing journey, it's really important to say again, there's no better or worse place to be. You might think there is, there isn't. Where you are is where you are, right? Uh, but it's helpful to know that different people have observed these, these different ways of growing up. Now, here's what's interesting. Spiral Dynamics was not written explicitly about church. It wasn't even written explicitly about Christian faith. But when you hear these sort of stages or memes described, don't they sound an awful lot like different kinds of churches? Right? We got rituals, traditions, and symbols. You can probably think of a Christian experience or church environment that's marked by rituals and traditions and symbols. We've got heroic leaders and storytellers. You can probably think of religious environments where there's like a super charismatic, compelling person up front that's driving everything and getting people excited. You can probably think of religious environments or spaces that have really clear, concrete doctrine and directives, and there's five steps and six things to do and four things to believe, and you're gonna sign off on all that, right? You can probably think of places that really speak to how you're gonna get ahead through this, how this is gonna help you achieve or thrive or be victorious, right? We could go on and on here, but though this book wasn't necessarily written to describe specifically church or Christian experience, it sure sounds like it's describing the ways that churches and religious experiences get organized, doesn't it? Now, one of the arguments that other people have made that I think is right is that often when you see like a church or a, a preacher or a writer or a voice like really cranking and people are really excited about that that community or that voice or that preacher, often what's happening is that that church or preacher are nailing one of these stages really well, right? They're just knocking it out of the park. And that can be really energizing or invigorating for people who are in that stage, right? This is why, by the way, you've got friends or family, and you know who I'm talking about, and they are just lit up about a certain preacher or like stream of Christian experience, and you feel like you're on the outside looking in, and you're like, I just don't get it. Ever been there, right? This is why the people you're most excited about, some of your friends are like, I just don't get it, because you feel like you're on the outside looking in, and you're not necessarily on the frequency that meets that message right where it's at, right? Now, the question we want to ask as a church, though, today is, if it's true that growing means change and that God who promises to, like, finish this work in us, to keep growing us all the way up, if it's true that along that path there's change and that through that change there's going to be different perspectives and different energies and different needs and different ways of flourishing, my question is, could a church be a place where people in lots of different places can all flourish together? Like, how could we be church together? Like, is it possible? Is it desirable? Uh, some of the sociologists, they kind of say, no, it's not really possible. Like, it just doesn't cohere. It doesn't really hold together. 
and um, some of the really considered ways of being church decidedly rule out this possibility and instead just kind of try to lock in on, on one really clear way of being together. And I'm not necessarily saying that's all bad, but I think there's some problems with it and I think there's some reasons we ought to reach for something different as a community. So for, for example, like one thing is um, if, if the church that you're a part of just really locks in on one of these sets of needs, one sort of step in the journey, well then you're at some point gonna probably be faced with a choice which is you're gonna to have to decide, do I keep growing? Do I keep saying yes to like, what God is moving me into, even at the expense of a community that can no longer affirm me or celebrate me or walk with me anymore, and, and maybe I have to leave behind my family? Or do I just double down on where I am and who I'm with and say no to what the Spirit is trying to grow up in me? That seems like a really unfortunate choice to have to make. And I wonder if it's possible to reach for a kind of community where that's not the kind of choice that we're faced with, right? I think another reason it would be really good if we ask if God wants the church or would help the church be a place for people in many different places, another reason this is good is because every stage of faith and experience has some dark side to it. And like life in any one of these stages of growth or maturity or loss or renewal, any one of these stages can rot a little bit. And maybe one of the ways that we prevent that from happening is by not surrounding ourselves with people who are in exactly the same place, right? Like a couple of examples. Like, like it might be that you're in a season of great doubt. Uh, maybe you would look back and say, man, I, like I used to believe in God. I'm not sure if I believe in God anymore. Maybe all that has just sort of fallen apart on you. Well, like... Like, wouldn't it be great if, if there was a way of being together so that even at a moment or in a season of life where faith is really hard for you to hold on to, you still find yourself held by other people who have like a really genuine and sincere faith that might prevent that doubt from metastasizing into a kind of dark nihilism that can be kind of scary. And it's not that you have to agree with the faith of the people around you, but there can be something about belonging to a community that holds belief for you on the days when you don't know how to hold it for yourself, right? Or what about the other way around? Like, it can be great to be really clear on everything you believe, and perhaps your experiences and the ideas in your head, it all lines up really nicely, really tightly, and so you're just really, really certain about like that there is a God or like what that God is like or what God means. But the problem, of course, is that kind of confidence can sort of rot its way into arrogance. It can become a, a way of being uh, more than confident. It can become a way of being kind of cocky in the world. And it might be that like to realize that you have a sister or brother sitting right next to you who's asking questions that actually really challenge some of the certainties that you hold so tightly it might actually draw you into kind of a humility, which doesn't require you to let go of those beliefs, but you might hold them with an open hand, and that might be a holier posture. I think it'd be really good if we could figure out how to be a church for people in different places, in different stages of experience, but I don't think it's easy. Uh, some in this community have had the experience of showing up and wondering what South and City Church is all about, and then the more you listen and pay attention, the more you think, yes, I have found my people, right? Others have had different experiences here. <laughs> you're getting coffee before the gathering, and you're just overhearing the conversations that are happening, and we, we never know what to call that. Is it a lobby? It, it's, 
that part of the room on the other side of the curtain. You know what I mean? Like, you're just kind of overhearing what's happening and the things that other people are talking about and the way they're talking about them, the things they're excited about, the books that they're reading, the questions that they're asking. You, you start to be like, I, I don't relate to that. <laughs> and if they're at home here, then I don't know if I'm at home here. Yeah, that can happen. Yeah, maybe it's, you don't even make it to the coffee out there. It's the bumper stickers on the cars in the parking lot when you walked in. <laughs> took a quick survey and you thought, are these my people? I don't know. And some of that might be about a lot of other things, but some of it might be that this is a community of people who at our center is a commitment to following Jesus in the way that God has revealed God's self in Jesus and in the way that he is teaching us to be human. But people can be approaching that center from many different places, right? And uh, the good news is I actually think the scripture gives us a way of being together that is distinctively uh, Christian, if you will. It's Christ-like, if you will. And I think it'll help us as a community work this out. So let me take you to the New Testament. I'm going to look at uh, a letter that Paul writes to uh, a church in a city called Philippi. And in this letter, Paul brings in what might have been like one of the very first ancient Christian hymns from what we can tell. So this apparently is a, is a song that might have been sung. And I kind of love the beauty and the mystery of that, that like in the first century, there was this little house church probably huddling up in Philippi and they were under perhaps threat of persecution or they were at odds with the world around them, but they knew that they had met God in a profound way in Christ. And so they'd huddle up and they would sing this song that Paul brings into the letter to remind them of how they are to be together. So let let me take you here to Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, in other words, in your way of being with each other as a church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, other translations render that he did not exploit the status or he didn't grasp the status, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, first of all, anybody familiar with that passage? Does it ring a bell for some? Yeah, right? You might have heard this preached before or even sung before. Uh, I want to go into this because it, it seems to be saying, well, be humble. And I think being humble is really good. But I actually think there's something more specific and insightful that's being called out in this passage. And I think it's the way that we can be a church for people coming from different places. Uh, let me go back to the passage here. Specifically, the text says, Christ being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, and then here's the actual Greek word, the verb for what he did, he echinocened. Amen? Uh, the word uh, in its sort of root is kenosis. Let's try saying kenosis on three. One, two, three. Yeah, you sound good. Uh, kenosis. This is the verb for what Jesus did. Now, the word in the Greek literally means something like he emptied himself. But you might, in another way, render it, he made room. He emptied himself or he made room. And theologians have grabbed this and run with it into some deep reflections. Remember, the text says that this whole poem is Christ being in very nature God. So whatever we're seeing here is, is in the, it's in the nature of God to do this unexpected sort of humbling, emptying thing. And to say that Christ uh, kenosened or emptied himself or made room, uh, 
reminds us that like at the very beginning of the entire Christian story is the idea of a God who in some strange way emptied God's self or made room. The story begins uh, with the idea of God sort of pre-existing everything, that there is God and there is just God. And then somehow God sort of makes room within the fullness of God for the world that you and I are a part of right now. I mean, just consider that meditation for a moment. If God is anything that the theologians have coherently said about God, like God didn't need this world. God enjoyed a fullness within God's self that lacked nothing. And yet, and here I'm speaking more in poetry than prose because the metaphysics get a little weird, but like, just hang with me, right? That like God somehow emptied out of space for this world, for these lives, for these wills of ours to exist, right? And then from that very beginning act of creation, all of this has existed in a space that was in some strange way, perhaps almost like vacated. Now, it's not that I think that God isn't in the midst of all this, right? But somehow God made room for your will and my will and your energies and my energies times billions and billions of people in this whole world. So much so that like anything you have ever believed or not believed, any place you have ever been on the journey of belief or non-belief or atheism or faith, like anywhere you've ever been in your mind or in your relationship to the divine, all of that existed within the hospitality of God who made room and allowed space for you to be wherever you are, right? I mean, the days when you have um, felt devotional toward God or the days when you don't believe in God or the days when you have lived a life of great integrity with the character of God or the days when you've lived a life that has no integrity with the character of God, like all of that has happened within a space that God has made and held for you because God, at the very beginning of all things, made room for the human other, which is you and me, right? And then we keep turning the pages and we get to the revelation of God in Christ. And again, we read that it is in the very nature of God to sort of empty himself out or to, to make room to show a radical and divine hospitality for you and for me. And Paul says, this is how you're going to have to be together. This is how you're going to be a church together. You're going to have to make room in the same way that Christ made room. It's not just humbling yourself. It's making room. Now, if all that sounds kind of abstract and theological, I think we can bring this down to like the ground floor really easily, right? Are there any parents in the room? Have any parents discovered that at some point the parenting journey meant you had to make room for this other life with its will and its ego and its decisions and its bad decisions? And there's something about that parental love that says, I got to make room for this life which is distinct from me in some way, right? Any married people in the room? I have heard that being married means learning how to make room for this other will in your life, this other perspective in your life, this other life in your life, and where perhaps before you were married, like your life occupied a space where your will won the day and your ego was in charge, and then you made a covenant to somebody and said, I'm going to make room for you within my life, within my finances, within my, my work. I don't think this has to be super abstract, but I do think it's deep that it has always been in the nature of God to make room. Uh, some theologians even call this something like canonic love, which is just a fancy way of saying the specific picture of love that we see when Christ emptied himself or made room that we would be a part of the life of God in him. 
And I, th I think this is a really good word for, um, for any individual in this community who's wondering, how are we going to be together when you might be in a really different place from me? Well, the posture is like, make room. I think of um, a few examples where I've like, wrestled with how it is that I like, embrace where somebody else is at. These can be really hard. In college, I had a, a really dear friend. Uh, we were very close, uh, but also through college, um, you could see that he was having a really, really hard time putting life together and holding it together. Uh, it was often really destructive. And sometimes um, the destructive things that he was doing were destructive for other people, too. And if you ever have been in those seasons, I know I have. Or if you've ever watched somebody in one of those seasons, I'm sure you have. Like, you know, it can just be really, really painful. And it's not that you don't want to put your life together. It's just that it's not working, right? And so uh, I watched uh, relationships really falter in his life, and I watched uh, alcohol and drugs take on a really dark role in his life. And I, I just watched this, this sort of this mess is really the best word for it. And I loved him to death, and we would talk about it a lot. And then we both moved on from college, and he went on uh, to do other things. And then we f saw each other again a few years later, and I had this distinct sense that something had gotten healed. Something had gotten put back together in his life in a really profound way, and I was happy for him about that, so I started asking him about that. Now, before I tell you what he tell, told me, um, let me remind you, as if you don't already know this about me, like, I have some theological opinions. And I think I'm right, which would be why I hold those opinions, right? That's how that always works, right? And I have strong feelings that there are certain ways of preaching the gospel which are historically uh, accurate and which live up to like the fullness of Christian tradition, and then there's ways of preaching that don't. And I have strong feelings that there are ways of being a church that are wrong and ways of being a church that are right. And there are different sort of camps in the theology, and uh, on my best days, I rise all above that. But on my worst days, I kind of know where I land, and I don't like the churches that land in other places. Just being honest with you for a moment, okay? And there's a particular, shall we say, brand of church in the world, and I mean literally a brand, that shows up in certain cities, and this friend of mine, it turns out, he landed at the, this brand of church, and the brand, they're wrong about everything. <laughs> I mean, they're like, what's wrong with the church in the world? It, that, this is like my uh, selfish, um, petty perspective. But the fact is my friend landed there and that's the place where all of the healing that I'd been praying for him to get happened. And I had to ask myself, is there a room in my heart for this? Is there a room in my will to celebrate this for him, right? But if we take anything from God's way of being with us, it's that like we have to learn to, to make room. Like, man, if, if you are growing up and growing whole and growing toward God, like, what business do I have standing against that? Right? I think of um, a married couple I know uh, really well, uh, husband and wife who I love, who are friends. And uh, several years ago, uh, the husband got to that wall that we've talked about in the last few weeks. So there's awakening moments and growing moments, and then a lot of these different maps of spiritual experience, they all describe a really hard wall that you can hit. And then when you hit the wall, that's where everything that got you this far can't get you any further. And things can get really scary at the wall. Things can get really messy at the wall. And, and that was the case for him. Now, this is one of those married couples where like, like when they got married, I think they had a really strong sense that not only are we both Christians, but we're like the same kind of Christian, like the same subspecies of Christian, if you will, right? 
Like that feeling that we're really, really kind of tightly aligned and in the same place. And then they get married, and this happens in a lot of marriages, right? They start living their life together and growing and changing in different ways and asking different questions. And then he hits that wall. And it got really, really like messy and scary. This is one of, the, one of the more sort of messy versions of this whole experience. And we walked together through a lot of that together. And they're in a really beautiful place today. But in that experience, I just remember being really in awe of the way that uh, she loved him. And I could just, I could like almost like physically feel the way that she was holding space for where he was. She wasn't where he was. She wasn't asking the questions he was asking, but she just had this way of saying, I can make room for this moment in the journey that you're on, even though it's unsettling and a little scary. Now, quick side note, I think this is important. Um, it's not like he was hurting her, okay? It's not like there was something abusive or destructive happening in the marriage. And if there had been, I would not be celebrating the story of her holding space for that, right? But in this case, it was just that he was at this wall place and I could feel the tension that that was creating for the two of them. But again and again, she just found a way to say, I can make room for this. And I, I'm like deeply convinced that the, the good and beautiful place they are in today is in many ways because she found a way to say, we can make room for this. Because of course, God has made room for all of this, right? Like God has made room for wherever you've been and wherever you are and wherever you will be tomorrow. And so we could learn to live that way together uh, because it's what God is teaching us to do. Now, um, uh, the good news is there are ways that we can practice this. There are like actual ways that we can intentionally move toward this. I mean, when Jesus teaches us to pray for our enemies, that's not an idea in your head. That's a, that's a way of being in the world that allows prayer to sort of excavate a space in your heart for people who are not only in different places than you, but they might even be opposed to you. I'm deeply convinced that praying for our enemies is like one of the desperate practices we have to recover in the era that we are living in now. Good news, by the way, about praying for your enemy, you don't have to feel anything for them when you start praying. <laughs> you don't. You could, just, you could just take that teaching as the insight that it is and begin praying, but you might discover, watch out, <laughs> that the more you pray for your enemy, it might begin to excavate a space within your heart where you can hold them with perhaps even some love. You may not like them, <laughs> but some love, right? The other practice that I want to um, center on today is uh, this Eucharist table, because I think this Eucharist table is actually like a profound way of making room for one another, of saying, hey, at this table, if there's a seat for me, there's a seat for you, you know? Uh, meals in general, like giving and receiving and sharing meals, um, call us into really profound ways of making room for one another, right? I've had a few experiences with this lately. Uh, I'm a foodie. I look like a serious, uh, perhaps unhealthily obsessed foodie, right? Uh, it all started, my dad worked for Whirlpool growing up, and so we had this little VCR cassette. And I realized years later, it was just a product demo tape. <laughs> but I thought it was like a cooking show. So I would go downstairs and I would watch it, right? Uh, and then I fell in love with Food Network, and I love to eat, and I love to cook. And frankly, guys, I'm pretty good in the kitchen. Uh, so I love cooking for my friends. Uh, but over the last couple of years, because like, life is really busy, and a lot of meals, probably just like you, a lot of meals are like, what's the most efficient, healthful, and affordable thing I can put in my mouth in the next five minutes? But every once in a while, I get to like, you know, like, 
share a meal with friends and make that meal for my friends. And ordinarily the way that I do that is uh, for my table group, uh, the group of guys that I've been sharing a meal with every couple of weeks for the last five years or so. And so uh, Wednesday nights come along and I used to get really excited about these Wednesday nights because I could just like go to town in the kitchen, right? It's kind of like a Jason show, which is part of the problem. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But, but then my friends, they started getting allergies. Yeah. So one of my friends who's been a part of this group for quite a while, he discovers that he can't eat any garlic or onion. I know, right? Poor me. No, I, poor him. But like for a cook, like to be told you can't use onions and garlic, I don't even know where to go from there, right? Like what are you going to make, you know? We just eat pie all night, but that doesn't sound good. So that happens, and I actually have this like kind of stirring, begrudging sort of frustration inside because I'm losing sight of what shared meals are all about, right? And then this other thing happens which really humbles my attitude about what a shared meal is, which is another friend who's part of my table who happens to live with me has some severe allergies, the most severe of which being peanuts, like a really, really bad peanut allergy, like he will die if he eats a peanut. And then we're having a bit of a shindig with the guys from my table a few years ago. And this particular night, I didn't have time to cook. And so I ordered Chinese food from a restaurant which shall not be named. And I call the Chinese restaurant and I say, hey, we'd like to do Chinese, but we got like a serious peanut allergy. Like somebody will die if there's, if there's a cross-contamination here. And they say, oh, don't worry, we deal with that all the time, completely safe. So we order all the Chinese food and then the guys and I were all hanging out and at a moment in this evening, my buddy who has the allergy, he just says to me, hey Jay, uh, do we have any Benadryl in the house? At the moment, I'm not thinking of it. I'm thinking, what, you got a cold? I was like, no, I don't think so. And he says, okay, cool. I think, I think, I'm, I think I'm gonna just, I think I'm just gonna go to CVS and get some Benadryl. All right, whatever. He leaves. Five minutes later, I'm like, wait a minute. My friend with a peanut allergy who's eating Chinese food just asked if I have something to prevent an allergic reaction, and so I start calling and texting, only to find out that the doofus drove to the CVS. By the time he gets to the cashier, his face is blowing up like a balloon. They tell him he's got to get to the hospital, so he gets into his car and he races to Memorial where he walks in and collapses and is like 10 seconds away from suffocating to death from the anaphylaxis that was swelling his throat to the point that he couldn't breathe. I know, right? And in all of this, I'm thinking to myself, like, to share a meal is to meet one another at the place of our greatest vulnerability and say every one of us is um, in need. Every one of us can be made unsafe. To share a meal is um, to be given the opportunity to expen ex extend, like, profound hospitality, which has nothing to do with your chops in the kitchen. Right? Like, to share a meal isn't performative. It's not... Uh, like, look what I can do. Like, the, the, the sacred power of a shared meal is we have to take these things into our body, and they can sustain us or they can kill us. We live and die by the need that we bring to the table every day. And to share a meal is to be given the unbelievable honor of putting something in front of somebody you love and saying, this is to sustain you. We all need sustained. And so it's interesting to me that um, at the center of Christian practice for 2,000 years has not been long sermons. I'm a big fan of a good sermon, but like a long sermon really, at the end of the day, it invites you to ask, do I agree or do I disagree, right? The center of Christian practice has not been a sermon. At the center of Christian practice has been a shared meal for 2,000 years, which says wherever you're coming from, 
whatever you believe or don't believe today, whatever we have in common and whatever we don't, we all have this meal in common and we share it together in our mutual hunger and need. And I think that um, to honor the Eucharistic table is both to make room for God's self who is in our midst at this meal, but also to look to one another and say, surely we can make room for one another. I may not understand everything that you think or the way that you see. You may not understand the questions that I'm asking. They may be frustrating to you. And yet, we come to this table and we remember that uh, this is a shared space with seats for anyone who wants to be a part of it. And so if we ask how is it that we can be a church together, I would say um, we can ask ourselves again and again, could I make room for you for where you're at? And we could come to this table that embodies that sort of shared hospitable space. So today we have the privilege of coming to Jesus' table and remembering that God made room for us, that we would have our worst days, that we would um, have moments when we are just, when we ought to be utterly offensive to God. Like God has made room. God has even made room for unbelief. Surely, because the scriptures speak radically to moments of unbelief and because we live in a world that can certainly generate unbelief or different kind of belief, and yet he's made room for all of that. So there's room for everyone here. And uh, we thought it would be really fitting that we come to this table. So I want to ask those uh, who are going to serve you to come here and join me on the table. And as they do, I first want to remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant forged in my blood. This is the cup of life that I give for you. Take and drink. So God, we pray and we thank you that you have made room for us that that strange word, that kenosis, has been happening from the very beginning. That every breath we have taken, every thought we have had, everything our neighbors have ever been wrong about, <laughs> anything our enemies have ever done, all that has happened in a space that you have held for humanity because you love us. So we pray today that we would remember and learn from this meal what it is to not just welcome you in our midst, but to welcome one another. We pray for people who are in fresh moments of awakening to feel the joy of this meal. We pray for people who are in moments of earnest learning to feel the sustenance of this meal. We pray for people who have discovered they have something to offer, that, that who you have made them to be is a gift for the church and for the world. We pray that this meal would fuel them in that journey. We pray for anyone who's at a wall who discovers that the things that brought them this far won't bring them any further, who's asking new questions, different questions, who is perhaps excited or perhaps terrified to perhaps see things in different ways. We pray that this meal would be an act of divine solidarity, not just that you are with them, but that we are with them, that we are with each other. We pray that this meal would be for every one of us to remember that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, that you haven't given up on us or walked away from us, but that you are continuing to care about who we become. We pray that as we come to this table, that we would keep growing up in love. 
I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. So we made it through stages of faith and spiral dynamics and a lot of things in the last few weeks. Um, uh, if you hear anything again, I hope you hear that word that we heard the other week, which is God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God has not given up on growing us up, even if the journey uh, may be harrowing or confusing, even if you feel more lost than found. God has not given up on growing us up. So may you delight in the prospect that you are your own unique species of love for the world, that God delights in the questions you ask, the convictions you hold, and the life that is emerging in your midst. May you trust the spirit who keeps wooing you forward even when the path is treacherous. And may we be good to each other. May we make room for one another. May this be a, a generous family for these journeys. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys.